0: Welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops and real stories. Thanks for the amazing response we've had to last week's episode, the murder of Roslyn Ray. If you have any information on that brutal 2005 murder in Newcastle that may assist the Homicide Squad, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. There's a $750,000 reward on offer for information. This week, we have a breakthrough on the three-year mystery of Lost at Sea, the Black Bone. And we go back to the Police Academy to see how Class 357 is meeting the physical challenges of making the grade as a New South Wales probationary constable. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Police Bank. Police Bank is a member-owned bank. Therefore, the focus is always on its members. With an emphasis on people, Police Bank shows its commitment by supporting various organisations, community groups, social clubs and sporting teams within the policing community. Police Bank works hard today to continue to protect the financial security and well-being of members of the police force and their families, friends and communities.
1: Hi, how are you going?
0: Good, got a couple of missed calls from you, what's happening?
1: I've got a bit of
0: a breakthrough, I think. This is part four of Lost at Sea, the black bone, the strange discovery of a human jawbone on a central coast beach in June, 2020. You can find the earlier episodes of this case in season one. Police have recovered the blackened mandible of a 15 year old boy. The date of death is uncertain, identity unknown. However, police have a new lead, a set of facts that ties the evidence together. I've, been, I've had a sleepless night kind of looking at things that after you raised the new name.
2: Uh, I'm, I'm sorry you had a sleepless night, but I'm glad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> this is a mystery, not a crime. Nobody is missing this boy. Everybody else who perished in this region, going back to 1948, has been accounted for or ruled out. And these are not the remains of a pre-colonial Indigenous person. Forensic odontologist, Dr. Phil Kendall, had hoped that a national call out to more than 12,000 practicing dentists would prompt information on the work observed in the mandible. Our speculative dating indicated the first molars had been removed in 2005 or 2006. If the dentist who performed the work could be located, there might be x-rays to compare. The bulletin to dentists went out on March 13, 2022, and elicited, not a single response from dentists. A distinguished team of forensic scientists from the University of Melbourne agreed to take a look, and Dr. Kendall applied to the New South Wales coroner to send the jawbone south. The officer in charge of this case, Detective Senior Constable Rodney DeBras, has decided to retire from the force after 34 years service. Every cop has a job they leave behind, and it looks like the black bone will be Rod's. Because it's one of those things, I guess you're going to have cases that you wish you had resolved. Would this have been one of them?
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's a few, there's a few there that got some that are, you 10, 15, 20 years old, but, you know, I still remember them because I haven't
3: actually got a result on them.
0: Another investigator has taken the file. However, unbeknownst to all, a parallel investigation is underway. One of the world's top forensic anthropologists, Dr Richard Wright, read an article in the Daily Mail newspaper about the podcast and was puzzled to find no cogent explanation for the colour of the bone and how this would affect estimates of the time of death. Dr Wright's work is legendary. He was involved in the excavation of mass graves in Bosnia that led to the prosecution of war criminals. He also led a team that exhumed and identified Australian and British soldiers buried in mass graves at Fromell in northwestern France during World War I. Wright says the jawbone was deposited in peat, an ancient organic material found in marshy or damp conditions. Wright thinks if it was preserved in an underwater seam of peat, the jawbone is much older than first thought. In early April, Richard Wright starts looking further back at local events. The Marine Area Command has gone back to 1948 and the sinking of two small vessels off the coast on a single day. But familial DNA has eliminated most of the victims of that tragedy who were unaccounted for. Wright then finds a report that has changed the investigation. He contacts police and sends a clipping from 1940. Sunday, July 29, Gosford. A man and his son were drowned while mooring a launch in Brisbane Water Along today. 15-year-old Donald Montgomery and Samuel Montgomery, 48, were out in a fishing boat when the boy's leg was caught in the Kellock, a small anchor or stone attached to a mooring chain. Donald was dragged overboard. His father dived in to rescue the youth, struggling frantically to keep him afloat and to reach the launch, which drifted away. Both became exhausted and their cries for help failed to attract immediate attention. Donald Montgomery sank and his father swam towards shore but became unconscious and also sank. Watchers from the shore were horrified when he did not appear on the surface again. Rescuers later recovered the father's body but the youth's body has not been recovered. Everything seems to fit. Donald's age, the location of the incident, it's proximity to the location where the bone was found on the beach. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm fine, Adam. I've had a sleepless night, kind of looking at things that after you raised the new name for the investigation, Donald Montgomery. It's um... Well,
2: I'm, I'm sorry you had a sleepless night, but I'm
0: glad. Yeah. <laughs> and we're currently following up things like uh, Samuel, the father, uh, is buried at Rookwood Cemetery. So we're sending an officer out to there to see what the inscription on the grave is because normally you'd have the father and then the son oh, yes. whose body yes. was not recovered. So that will help us establish. But you're right, I went right through Trove. I couldn't find any other references to it. And it's funny, you know, because I've been looking at this thing for more than a year and using Google. And if I just put Etalong drowning, that would have come up. Uh, I consistently used et along death (laughs) not drowning and that would have been the difference because when you put that in it's the first result on the search a news item yes yeah so but what a tragic circumstance though when you there's no inquest which suggests the body was uh not found i only could only search to 1942 but i think if a body's going to be found it's within two years and if it's not two years it's not going to be found
2: absolutely Right. The only question for me now. Floating, you wouldn't expect the body to float um, after so much time.
0: Right. And I'm prepared to accept our dating was wrong, but the question I have is, how do we explain the blackness? If that's the river estuary, I mean, do you think there's going to be some peat or ilmenite or something there that would explain the colour of the bone? I'd go. I'd go for the
2: peat. I think it's very important in the investigation to go back in time and see whether there are any references in the council records or whatever records are relevant to the fact that there is peat that has been dredged up um i know that in the in, in the tuggera region at the lakes entrance um i've seen the black peat that was dragged up from a similar environment um similar beach environment and mm. uh, I, I really think that's a critical thing to do it's only going to get encased in peat if the peat has been previously disturbed. If, a, if there is a flat level, um, the body just lies on it, I would imagine. But I think that given the amount of dredging that's gone on, and if (it's a big if) um, there is peat there, then it probably got mixed up with with uh, dredged peat that hadn't actually been pulled to the surface, and then later. Um, it was exposed to um, current action and uh, washed up on the beach. All I know is that blackness um, is a characteristic, particularly in Ireland. They get these uh, animals in the peat and they're jet black like the minor mandible. It, it's uh, in remarkably good condition.
0: But it still so could be was 80. Be-
2: it was washed up very shortly before it was found.
0: Okay. And it's so it could still be 80 years old.
2: Oh, well, why not? I mean, if it's in peace, it's not going to be abraded. Abrasion is the thing that destroys bone under those sort of marine conditions. And this hasn't suffered any abrasion. Um, but if it was in the peace for 80 years, it's just lying peacefully. Um, and unabraded. Um, so I, I think, yes, it could, could well
0: have been from a person who died 80 years ago under the circumstances as I'm proposing. Mm. Uh, well, the funny thing is you've sort of changed mm. the direction. You've changed the direction of the investigation, but also back to what I was thinking initially about, yes. about a local event, someone drowning and, and then it being dredged and moved around to the beach. And, and everyone said I was crazy. So I'm, glad, I'm really glad to meet you, Richard Right.
2: Well, we're two crazy people,
0: eh? So that's really exciting, Richard. Thank you so much. Okay, well, uh, if I can contribute any more, I will, um, but I'm happy to stay with the investigation. Well, absolutely, well, you know, you're part of the team now. good <laughs> Right. <laughs> Thanks, mate, Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Great, Right-o. thank you. Goodbye. Jeez, that's a pretty good lead. Now, Donna Bruce is going out to Rookwood today Brookwood Cemetery to have a look for Samuel Montgomery's grave and to see if there's an inscription there that refers to Donald, whose body was not recovered, lost at sea. We shall see. We shall see. My next call is to Dr Phil Kendall. Without his accurate age estimate of 15 for the deceased, this moment wouldn't be happening. Good news or the bad news? Yes, good news. Good news is we are certain this is him. Wow. Bad news is, have to prove it.
2: <laughs> right, um, that's, that's amazing. i d I've I'll be thinking over him and thinking, no, it couldn't be. And then I think, but he's 15, exactly the right age. It's a boy. It just, it's too much of a coincidence. It, it, uh, Edelon being right next to you, mine tangled
0: up in uh, ropes and anchors and stuff mm. and never found. Yeah, anyway, well done, Phil. You've been tremendous. So it's good well, to get to this the point.
2: Let's that's come up with the leads. I, I mean, you've done a terrific job.
0: Just to get the podcast made was the, was the achievement for me and to get a result from that is very pleasing. But I guess now we have to prove it. Well,
2: we're a lot closer than we used to be.
0: Correct. And the fact that 15, that's the one that really, whenever you're thinking it could be anybody in the world, you go, but this is a 15-year-old and and that's one, that's the hardest piece of evidence we have about it, isn't it, really? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. 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 All right, my friend, I'll talk to you then. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Phil. All the best. Bye. Bye. Our theory that our jawbone is from 1940 rests on Richard Wright's opinion that it's been preserved in peat. In fact... Wright says he will eat his hat if there isn't a field of peat involved.
4: Hello, mate. Hi, mate. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. Yourself?
0: Brett White is the former beach manager for the Central Coast Council. He's a font of local knowledge. And yes, he says there is peat in the area where Donald perished.
4: Where the nipple courts are at along, that used to be a wetland that had peat in it there. so Where's that? i mean. In- um, uh, you know where i took you to the beach and we yeah. got in my car that's edelong beach well um if you come back towards edelong point about uh, i suppose three four hundred meters just behind the row of houses that are on the waterfront there that's what we call edelong netball courts um, mm. and it's just a big area that's Ashfielded. and uh, originally i remember reading the documents when i was working um, back then that was all a swamp and they filled it in it's kind of like a, I think if I remember reading it was like a lagoon and then there was a sandbar and mm. then there's the water and the sandbar is what the road and a couple of houses are built on.
0: Richard Wright says the peat deposit had probably been recently disturbed by dredging. Brett White says this happened often over the past century.
4: I think if I remembered rightly they were doing it about every 10 years. He could have expired there and been been stuck in that area and then you know we you know we've had massive amounts of rains over the last 10 12 years so that sounds like a good idea that it
0: was um, it was deposited somewhere you know out of the abrasion zone and everything is pointing to Donald Maxwell Montgomery but the ultimate test is to find a living relative who can provide a familial dna sample to compare with the yamina mandible in years past Having a set of facts that link the jaw to a missing person like this would be enough for police to advise the coroner that this was Donald Montgomery. A positive DNA match will settle the issue. Luckily, we have a champion genealogical researcher on the team, acting inspector Donna Bruce. The day after the discovery, Donna has some news.
1: Hi, how are you going?
0: Good, got a couple of missed calls from you. What's happening?
1: I've got a bit of a breakthrough, I think. Really? I think um, I've been able to um, find some living relatives of Donald Montgomery. So that will we'll be able to get the bugle swab done.
0: The mother of Edmund Ironside was Donald Montgomery's cousin. Wow, it's amazing. So who have you got?
1: He's 81
0: <laughs> and he's okay. still
1: alive. And he's living in Penham Hills in Sydney. So. Um, yeah, we just had a good chat on the phone and he, he, he's aware of the boating tragedy. He's right across it. He's got some newspaper clippings and, um, yeah, knew, knew about that family tragedy and he was able to tell me, um, you know, and confirm what was in the paper that the, the anchor line got wrapped around his leg and threw him overboard and Donald's dad jumped in after him. But Sam, Sam couldn't swim, so that was... Um, probably the reason why he ended up drowning.
0: So Edmund, so Edmund was born in February 1941.
1: He was, he was. So he, his mother um, was Hazel Mary Muir, um, and Hazel was the sister of Kathleen Muir, and, and Kathleen married Samuel. Every line of inquiry is leading us to believe that it is Donald and even the family themselves. When I was talking about this with Ed this morning, you know, as soon as I told Ed that the, um, the forensics have determined that the Bowden belongs to a 15-year-old boy, I mean, you know, like, what are the chances, Really? The thing is, right, that back in the day, one would automatically assume that, you know, you put the two and two together and it would be it. It's just really great that we now have this technology that can confirm it once and for all, definitively, that that phone belongs to that person.
0: I called Edmund Ironside, Donald's second cousin, straight after hanging up from Donna. Hello? Good morning, is that Mr Ironside?
2: Yes, yeah, speaking.
0: It is Adam Shan from the podcast. I believe you've spoken with uh, Sergeant Donna Bruce.
2: That's correct, yes.
0: What a pleasure it is yeah. to speak to you.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, uh, I, 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 we're, we're sort of... I was just talking to my older sister about this because, you know, we're really happy if you've really found something because none of us ever... I know the family never knew what happened to, to Donald... He, we, the last we heard was he. He went over the side of a launch, and his father dived in after him. Sam, Uncle Sam, that was my mum's uncle, uh, mm. and he dived in to rescue him, and he drowned too. They got him out, but uh, the body of uh, of uh, young Donald was never found. He was my mother's cousin.
0: In the meantime. The missing persons registry has taken a buccal swab from living relatives. This sample and the jawbone have been sent to the United States for the final testing process. We'll bring you the results in a later episode. However, police are confident that Donald Maxwell Montgomery will finally be laid to rest. We're expecting the results of DNA testing in the coming weeks that will put this mystery to rest. We'll keep you posted on developments as they happen. In a moment, we'll return to the New South Wales Police Academy. But first, a message from our sponsor. Police Bank are offering up to $4,000 cash back with any new refinance. Simply refinance your existing owner occupied or investment home loan of $300,000 or more from another financial institution to qualify. This offer is available to applicants who apply and are approved up until the 3rd of May 2023 eligibility criteria applies. Please see the terms and conditions in the show notes for more information. This segment is sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. Let's go back to the New South Wales Police Academy. The students of Class 357 are steadily working towards their goals of becoming fully-fledged police officers. A key part of that is attaining fitness levels and resilience they'll need on the job. Like on the parade ground, there are no excuses in the gym for the recruits. Physical fitness helps officers stay safe, injury free, and helps them to cope with the physical demands of police work. The recruits have plenty of assistance to make the standards required during their
3: 16 weeks at the academy. My name is Acting Sergeant Henry Hurley. I'm a PTI here at the New South Wales Police Academy. I've been at the police academy for just on about five years, and I've been in the police force for just about 15. And what does
0: a PTI do?
3: Um, so PTI at the academy, we're responsible for developing strength and fitness in our students. So we try to develop resilience as well as strength and cardiovascular fitness through physical training.
0: And what's your background? You've got a sporting background?
3: I could... um, yes, uh, my background, um, my parents, they owned a gym when I was 14. So I grew up weight training and in a fitness kind of environment. Uh, at the age of 18, I became a personal trainer, um, did some work with some football clubs, and then developed a fitness software, which the police ended up using. And through that, I met police officers and decided this is a good career, and then joined the police. What do you seek to
0: instill? What is the value of physical
3: fitness in terms of what they'll be expected to do in the job? So the job's physically demanding as well as mentally demanding. By developing, you develop resilience through doing difficult things. Um, So training hard and pushing yourself to uncomfortable limits develops that resilience. We try and still that in students here where we get them comfortable in the gym, we get them comfortable with um, interval training and running to the point where they can walk into a gym anywhere in the world and be comfortable lifting. Um, They also have the knowledge of how to develop um, cardiovascular endurance. So through interval sessions, through long run sessions, um, how to taper, how to incorporate rest periods into their training. Every student who leaves you after 16 weeks has been through a 16-week program that has all of those principles. So we try and instill that as a habit while they're here, and then when they leave, they want, we want them to continue it throughout their careers. That's not always the case, but our goal is to try and make every police officer at least active and create a habit with those, with those principles. You've got a current intake. Yes. How did they turn up on day one? Um, it's... A mixture. So we've got some really good athletes, some ex-professional athletes, so a lot of football players, um, ex-military people who have been through the ringer before. They know how to train hard. They know how to lift. And then we've got people who are straight out of high school who've never lifted before. Um, So it's a big variety. We have tailored our program to suit everybody. So we acknowledge on day one in in our first mass lecture that we understand not everyone's at the same fitness level and not strength level. And we're going to work with you regardless of where you are. Effort is what we're watching. So if you put in the effort and you really have a go, we're pretty happy. Um, if you can't bench press the bar in week one and you can bench the bar in week 16 with a little bit of weight, I'm happy. Um, if you can bench 100 kilos in week one and bench 120 in week 16, I'm happy as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a sliding scale because we've got everyone from 18 year olds to 50 year olds, um, male, female. You know, It's a big scale of people we're working with. And as long as I see improvement and I see that intensity and that effort in their attitude, I'm pretty happy.
0: So there's no pass or fail on the PT side.
3: There is. There's definitely a pass or fail. Um, our standards are the same as recruitment except for the hand grip. So um, left and right hand, 35 kilo minimum on the dynamometer. Um, we then go to the vertical jump where it's a 30 centimetre minimum jump. Um, Extend arm hover, which is a 90 second with your arms straight in a hover position. After that, it's push-ups, 25 push-ups. And then we go to the running component, 7.1 minimum on the beep test. And then anything less than 20 seconds on the Illinois agility test.
0: What's the agility
3: test? Uh, It's a test on we're assessing your ability to move and change direction at speed. So you run 10 metres in one direction, turn around, come back down in 10 metres. Then there's four cones set up where you weave in and out of the cones up and down, and then up and down again in the 10 metres. So up, back, weave, weave, up, back over a 10 metre period.
0: These challenges typically reveal character Mm -hmm. as well as physical attributes. How much is that designed into what you're doing?
3: Yeah, so every session is designed to make the students uncomfortable or push themselves to an uncomfortable level. Our sessions are based on ability-based training. So we'll do a test in week two, or HLS two, which is called the 3015. Depending on the score you get during that will depend on your next five weeks of training. So if you get a higher score, you're gonna work a little bit harder for the next five weeks. If you get a lower score, you work a little bit less than the people that get a higher score. So it's all ability-based, very specific to the individual. Um, in addition to that, our sessions, we have sessions incorporated like the Fartlek Pursuit or Uniform Rope Run, which is purely designed to test your resilience. Um, so there's a lot of yelling. You don't... It's a, it's a surprise for the students as to what's going to happen to them. Um, they're in uniform. They're running around with a rope, working as a team and having to complete different obstacles and activities. So that's a more of a resilience class where we're seeing the way they react to a lot of stress.
0: I think some people, I guess... Would look critically at the police and say, oh, they're going to try to break you down and remake you. Is it as simple as that?
3: No, no, it's not the military. Um, We're not in the business of breaking people. We we want to build on what you've got. So we're recruiting from society, and that's the value in the police force is that we're recruiting people who understand the communities that they're going to go police. I'm not looking to break you into some robot. We want to just make you better than what you are when you first got here. So when you go out to police that community, you're still you, but a little bit stronger, a little bit fitter, so you can do the job. That's our goal.
0: Sergeant Hurley is a different character to Protocol Sergeant Tony Wade, but both take an unforgiving approach in the first few weeks of training. This will be the first experience of working under a sergeant, as they will once confirmed as police officers. The academy is about setting standards that will prevail right through a career.
3: So we've got people who've never done anything and have never pushed themselves. The way we normally run in my unit runs is that we'll be quite... Strict and quite hard for the first few sessions till we get those the, the stress response that we're looking for. Because a lot of people quit as soon as something gets difficult just because it's easy and they can make their life easier. If there's a fear as a motivator, which isn't the best motivator, but while we're there, it's quite effective. Um, if there's a fear as that motivator to make them work harder and make them push and realize nothing bad's going to happen if you get a little bit uncomfortable, then things get easier from there. So in week one, two, three, we're a bit hard and where people are quite fearful of us. And then once we've elicited that response from you where you go, okay, I can push myself, I'm not gonna die, everything's okay, I work hard, I feel great afterwards. Once people have made that um, metamorphosis nearly and changed the, the way they're thinking about training to just go, okay, I'm gonna get involved, and I'm gonna get this done, then we dial back and we're actually quite reasonable. Um, as long as effort is there. When people stop putting effort in, we dial back and the angry guys come out again. But that's not our goal. We want people to feel comfortable in a gym. We want you to come in and get involved and have a chat to us You know, if I see you in the gym, I'm happy. I want you in the gym, I wanna see you lifting, I wanna see you running. If I see your face in there all the time, I'm happy. So the first few weeks are quite rough for us because we've got those people who've never done anything. And now they've done five weeks of training and they're actually seeing improvements. So the motivation is now coming from themselves rather than from us. They're starting to go, okay, I'm I'm getting stronger. I'm getting fitter, things are getting easier. I'm, I'm making improvements. And they're keeping diaries. Every two keeps a diary of what lift, like if they squat 50 kilos week one, they write that down in a diary and every week they go and they check their weights against the previous weeks so in week five we're starting to see that now and we our life gets a lot easier as ptis from week five onwards because the students know how to lift their forms pretty good and they're starting to make improvements on themselves and we can sit back and just coach them um, on technique and give them a bit of advice here and there um, mainly now there's a few niggles that are starting to pop up so shins are getting a little bit sore or shoulders or whatever little niggers popping up, we give advice on how to you know do preventative maintenance or manage that. But generally, the further into session we get, the easier our lives get. Some elements
0: of like a like bit of a spa or something going on here. Yeah. But, the, but the reality is, physical fitness is going to be, in terms of resilience and survival and so forth, it's going to be real world sometime in their careers. And yeah. how do you inculcate that in that being fit may indeed help them do their job, but also
3: help them stay alive? So... Especially in the first few weeks, we really relay this point um, that they're all going to be general duties cops, okay? Myself and my team, all the PTIs, we're all operational general duties cops. I, I did GDs for 10 years and other people in my team have done it for longer. So we all know what GDs entails and what it requires. So especially in the first like four or five weeks, at the end of every session, we'll not critique, but we'll be honest with people who not perform to the standard we require. So my, what I generally say is if you're looking, there's 24 students in the tube, and I say, if you look to your left and your right, and the person to your right didn't perform to what you expect of your partner, that's a problem. And I, re- I expect all of you to be honest with each other and say, look, if you want me to work with you, and because that's what you are, you're not students here, you're, you're potential future colleagues. And if I look at you and go, the effort you're putting in is not good enough to keep me safe, because that's what it comes down to on the street. It, it's you and me, we're working on a car, that's all we got. I worked out bush, you, sometimes you'd only cop for a couple hundred k's. So you know, you've know, got to rely pretty heavily on your partner. And if you look to the person to the right of you and they're not at that standard, I, I encourage classes to be honest with each other and they need to keep each, each other accountable and hold each other to account to say, okay, you want to do this job, you got to, you got to perform. you got to be where I need you to be. And we instill that from day one, saying this is the job you guys are going to. People are drug affected, people are mentally ill, it's not all roses and butterflies out there. People are going to try hurt you. Like, that's the fact of the job. Okay? Just for wearing a uniform, they're going to try hurt you. You need to be prepared. Okay? You don't have to be the fittest person on the earth. You don't have to be a black belt in jiu-jitsu, but you've got to be able to do something. Um, it's not good enough to not perform. So.
0: 24 in the intake right now. Mm-hmm. Are there any you're concerned about? You put, uh, yep. the, I mean, some people don't finish. Yep. And what typically happens
3: when someone doesn't finish? Like, as in passing standards, there's people that we call at risk. So in week one, we'll do testing. So when you first get here, um, we will test you on your fitness standards. Again, keep in mind, this is just the PT side of things, like there's other aspects to the course. And then we'll assess people based on their fitness and go, okay, you are not what we need you to be. And this is just on recruitment standards, okay? So if you don't hit that 7.1 on the beep test, which sometimes happens, because there's six months between recruitment testing and people arriving here. Um, we, We have a program, an online training program, which we train them for the 16 weeks before they get here. But for whatever reason, sometimes people aren't at the standard we require. Um, We then put them in remedial groups. Um, So it'll be remedial running or remedial strength, depending on what you need. Sometimes people are in both. Um, We'll work with you intensively and in a smaller group for the next 10 weeks and try to get you up to that standard. Um, Very rarely do we have people who don't pass. Um, I think we've had two people in the last five years who we haven't got up um, because it's all attitude. If you put the work in and you have that attitude of I'm gonna do it, you will be fine. Um, If you're here, you've obviously got a a level of fitness, so we can work with that. Um, Two people who haven't passed didn't want to do the work. Um, In that case, um, if you fail, say you're in 357 and you fail PT testing in week 11, you are then um, removed from the course, you go and train and we'll give you a program to do at home, and then you come back and you'll test with the, the next class along. Yeah,
0: there's plenty of opportunities there. So, in your career, how important, if you could think of any incidents or anything, has your physical fitness been to your effectiveness and, and, and self-preservation?
3: It, it's invaluable. Um, resilience, so just the ability to push yourself to... I'm, I'm not anything special by any means, but when I train, I train like to the point where I'm hurting and get used to that pain, so that de- develops resilience to a level where I can bounce back. And there's also... When I go to a stressful job, which has happened happened on occasions, and I've had you know like um, a bit of residual impact from that job, I've literally just turned to fitness, physical training, and that's got me through it. So just moving yourself, getting those you know dopamine levels rising, just you feel good after a run or after doing weights. So that's helped a lot. Um, in an operational sense, being strong and being fit is the most important thing um, that you could possibly have. People underestimate the importance of it, which I don't understand because you're going out there. Um, the crooks don't care if you're a five foot female or a six foot six male. Okay, they're either, they, they don't wanna to go to jail. So they're gonna do what they're gonna do. Um, they're not gonna take leniency upon you because you look physically weak. Um, so obviously it's best to be able to be physically strong. And then also just getting in getting wrestles or getting fights with people and drug-affected people are really strong. Um, I, they're really strong. They don't feel pain and they're really strong and there's been three guys my size on one guy and we had difficulty controlling him. So, like, we we're all six foot two, you know, 100 kilo guys, and we had issues trying to control a guy who was drug affected. Um, so, the stronger you are and the fitter you are, the safer you're going to be. It's really important.
0: So, as one of their first sergeants, the, the PT instructor, you're a role model for them going forward. Yep. And it's
3: a, quite an awesome responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Like, and uh, well, like, honestly, this isn't work. From, I, I love my job so much. And people think it's a bit corny when we say that, but myself and my team, we like we come in on days or sometimes we need to help. Like, it, it is not an issue. We, we're we more than happy to do this job because we see the results. We know how important it is. Um, to get the job at the academy in this unit, you have to have a physical lifestyle. Like you, you, We don't do this because it's our job. We do this regardless of whether we worked here or not. When I was in GDs, I was still working out five days a week um, because I knew the importance of it because I enjoy it. So for us, this is so important because it's not only a lifestyle and our job but it's a passion and we're seeing the direct results of it because we're seeing people who have come in underdone and they come out you know change people um they've they've improved themselves so much and seeing the pride that they have in themselves and also knowing that we're sending a good operational cop out to our friends and my like my family out there is you know super important rather than sending someone who you know can be bothered. So I take it very personally when someone has a poor attitude and couldn't be bothered doing the training. And I, I, yeah, I deal with that appropriately.
0: Pretty rare occasion though.
3: Yeah, yeah generally people switch on. pretty like, This is a big, big change. If you look at someone coming straight out of high school um, where you know, they've had a year 12 teacher or whatever like as their um, authority figure for you know, X amount of years and they come here and from what I hear, like the high school uh, discipline's not what it used to be. Um, so sometimes it just takes a, a realisation on their part to go, okay, okay, that's how things are here. So generally we, we have we might have an issue one or two in the early days and as soon as I have that first conversation with them, the attitude adjusts and they go, okay, this is what is expected of me. And I, I'm very fair in the fact that I don't assume that you know that. I'll be very clear with you and I'll be very direct as to what's expected and it's up to you as to how you react to that. And generally that works nine times out of ten. It, it completely comes down to attitude. We've had people who've been terrible in the in week one or week two, and I've had conversations with them as to whether this job's for them. Um, And when I'm referring to them, I'm saying the way they are now, currently, Um, so their attitude at that moment. It's up to them as to whether they change into the people that they want to become and the police officers they're they're willing to become, and that just takes a switch of the attitude and motivation levels um, to make them work harder and become the person they're trying to be. Uh, Any you, that's great.
0: Any you you watching at the moment in this intake?
3: Um, there's a few that, there's always a few that we're conscious of. Um, sorry to go back to that one. Um, some of the worst students that I had in week one or two have been some of my favourite students by the time testing comes. Um, purely based on their work ethic. They just go 110% and they just, they are determined to improve and they see those improvements every single time they try and every single time you get a student who puts that effort in, you see those improvements. Um, but it's up to them to do that and we've absolutely loved some students who've done that and they've been our favourites still are
0: this segment was sponsored by charles sturt university providing education for police and law enforcement next week you'll meet the squad that's dedicated to chasing the ill-gotten gains of some of the state's most prominent organized criminals and the students journey at the academy continues inside the new south wales police force is sponsored by police bank to find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, speak to us on 131728 or visit policebank.com.au because banking with Police Bank means banking where you belong. Inside the New South Wales Police Force podcast is produced by Piccolo Podcasts and Media Productions. Host Adam Shan, producers Andrew Menzel and Courtney Besgrove. For New South Wales Police, Amy Hosking, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Sergeant Megan Knight and Senior Constable Ash Bold. Original music by Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band.